Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. At this point, our children are dismissed for kids in training. The rest of us who are going to remain in church this morning, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're midway through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4 at this point. We're going to look at verses 21 through Uh, 34 today. When you find that, let's go ahead and grab your Bible to stand up together as the people of God. We're standing because God's word is holy. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the authority over our lives. Mark chapter 4, verse 21. Let's listen now to the word of our Lord. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 26, and he said to them, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Lord God, explain these things to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we just read in verse 33 that you spoke as they were able to hear it, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would now enable us to hear, to understand, to apprehend, to receive, and to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Suppose I have in my hand a glass of water. Can you see it? You can. Interesting. Well, it's clear. A little hard to see. Water's clear in it too. The old Rorschach test of uh, 
is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? That's the way that we view the world. That old analogy, do you see things half full or do you see them half empty? There's probably about half of us in the room this morning that all things considered, we, th- we see things rather positively. We call these people optimists. Optimists wake up in the morning, well before dawn, they spring out of bed, they don't even need coffee in the morning to wake up, they go downstairs before it's light, they do their jumping jacks, they go for their run, they have a wonderful attitude, they're singing show tunes in the shower. It's gonna be a wonderful day for the optimist. The optimist is the kind of person who sees everything as though it's going to be well. An optimist looks up into the sky, sees a silver lining around every cloud. An optimist looks out at the world, sees a pot of gold at the bottom of every rainbow. You can never distract an optimist. You can never depress an optimist. They always just have this feeling, this attitude, this pervasive view of life that all is going to be well. It is well, and it's going to be just fine. That's an optimist. How many of you this morning would consider yourself to be optimists? Anybody out there? One or two of you, one or two of you. So what of the rest of us then? Apparently, the rest of us in the room are what we would call a pessimist. Pessimist is the exact opposite of somebody who sees the world primarily negatively. The alarm goes off at 6 a.m. in the morning and the pessimist rises out of bed like the kraken arises out of the cold Nordic seas waiting to find somebody to destroy. The pessimist has a view that all things are not going to go well. The pessimist sees all things through a clouded lens, a dark lens. A pessimist can always find a reason why your good idea is not going to work. A pessimist always looked at the news and says the world is crumbling around of us. Some of us are pessimists and we just can't help it. Amen? And so we're either optimists or we're pessimists. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a little bit too stark of a contrast, but for the most part, we tend to fall into one of those two categories. Now, as it pertains to us looking at redemption history, again, we find ourselves to either be in one of those two camps, that either we're seeing the world around us as going rather swimmingly well, or perhaps if you're a pessimist, you might be tempted to think that everything is collapsing all around us in today, in our age and time. And if, you, if, if you're an optimist, let me give you seven or so reasons why you might consider being a pessimist. You ready? I'll do these fast. Number one, the secular, secularization of the West happening pretty swiftly all around us. Number two, the rise of the nuns. What are the nuns? The nuns are those people that used to be Christian but no longer consider themselves under any church or denominational affiliation. Number three, the liberalization of our universities. Number four, the legality of abortion on demand. Number five, the sexual revolution and the breakdown of the family all around us. Number six, the confusion of the genders. Number seven, a new and dangerous flirtation with the ideas, the old tried and failed ideas of socialism. And we look at these seven factors and some of us say to ourselves, well, it certainly seems like the sky is falling, doesn't it? My goodness, what are we going to do? The thing, though, is that almost every generation of Christians that I'm aware of has seemed to think that their generation is succeedingly worse 
than the generation that immediately preceded it. Some of you are probably old enough that you can even remember the days when prayer was allowed in schools. Do you remember that? Some of us, us, that, that was never part of our lifetimes. For some of you, though, you remember when prayer was allowed in schools. And so we say to ourselves, what if we could just get back to that golden age just a generation or so ago? But you know what's interesting is that generation looked back to the previous generation and thought that that was the Gilded Age. And so it on goes throughout history. If you lived in the 20th century, you thought uh, probably back in the days of the Second Great Awakening, and that was the real heyday for Christianity. And if you lived then, you probably looked back to the First Great Awakening as when we really had it together as a nation. And if you lived then, you probably looked back to the time of the Puritans, and the Puritans looked back on the Reformers, and the Reformers looked back on the Patristics, and the Patristics looked back to the days of the New Testament when everything was really right and good, like in the church of Corinth, right? And so we keep looking back and back to this golden age of Christianity that probably, in all reality, never was. So why do we look at the world so pessimistically as though it were collapsing all around us when Daniel and Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter two, which we just read this morning, tells us that there is going to be a victory for the kingdom of Christ. Daniel tells us explicitly and clear that all of the pagan kingdoms around be that pagan kingdom Babylon or Medo-Persia or the Greeks or the Romans, those kingdoms, those secular kingdoms will be those that collapse and fail and that it will be the kingdom of God, the stone which crushes the foot of the idol, it will be the kingdom of God that at the end of the day is the successful, true, real, strong and invincible kingdom and yet why don't we see things that way? And our passage in Mark chapter four This morning, I hope you still have your Bibles open with me. We're going to look at this passage in some detail this morning. We see yet a similar optimistic prophecy given by Christ. If Daniel's prophecy is an optimistic view of the kingdom, then by all means, so is what Jesus says about the mustard seed parable of the kingdom. I'm gonna be looking primarily at verses 30 to 34 this morning, so you might want to attune yourself to those particular verses. And let's look at this passage for a moment. Let's start off in verse 30. And and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use? Let's stop right there in verse 30 to define a couple of words. What is a parable after all? A parable after all is a story that illustrates something greater than itself. So I'm gonna define a parable simply like this. They are illustrative stories drawn from the ordinary elements of real life to illustrate the extraordinary spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. Okay, drawn from ordinary life, but describing or illustrating extraordinary spiritual aspects of the kingdom of God. That's what these parables, most of them are, is somehow a direct illustration of the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Let's define that too. What is the kingdom of God? I'm going to define the kingdom of God as the absolute reign and sovereign rule of our Lord Jesus Christ as son of the Father, as he reigns by the power of the Holy Spirit and establishes and advances his own kingdom, capital K, in the face of all of the little kingdoms, lowercase k, of the world. 
So my thesis this morning in our sermon is going to simply be this. And if you're taking notes in the bulletin, uh, this is the main idea of the sermon. I want to present to you this morning, for those of us who are pessimists, for those of us who are cloud seers, for those of us who are the Eeyores of our generation, you remember Eeyore? Here's the idea. I want to present an essentially positive view of the kingdom of God such that it can be said that the kingdom of God cannot, will not, and shall not fail in its mission and purpose. It shall not, it cannot, it will not fail in its mission and purpose. And to do that, I want to look at two points which I'm going to draw primarily from verse 31 in the text and verse 32 in the text. So let's talk, first of all, about the inconspicuous nature of the kingdom of God, the inconspicuous nature of the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 31. Jesus says, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all of the seeds on the earth. Now, what in the world do I mean by inconspicuous? Do you know what that word means? I looked it up in the dictionary for you. It means not conspicuous. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Einstein. You are welcome. Inconspicuous means unremarkable, ignorable, easily overlooked. Conspicuous being the opposite means something shiny, something fancy, something bright, something that draws your attention. Isn't it interesting, if we look back in uh, Daniel's parable, how he describes this idol statue, and the statue really is comprised of several different layers. It's all an idol. And every layer of the statue, from gold to silver to bronze to iron and clay, it's, he's just describing the kingdoms of man. And he describes them in this way. He says, the image was mighty and exceedingly bright. That's conspicuous. And yet, what is it that brings down these secular kingdoms of pagan man? What is it but this inconspicuous, simple stone, an uncarved stone, an undressed stone? The the scripture specifically says, a stone that is not cut by any human hand, verse 34. And so it's a simple, mere, ordinary stone that will bring down this gloriously, exceeding, bright idol statue that King Nebuchadnezzar sees. And in in Mark, if we flip back to to Mark chapter four, how does Jesus describe the kingdom of God? With what illustration can Jesus describe the greatness of the kingdom? What does he choose of all the things in nature? He takes a simple seed. A seed? Not the Grand Canyon, not the beautiful trees, not the redwoods, not the most glorious fruit of the garden? No, he takes a seed, a dull, gray, small seed. And what do we do with seeds? We put them into the earth, into the ground. And so Jesus and Daniel both see inconspicuous illustrations of the glorious nature of the kingdom. Now, why is it? Here's the question, Gospel Fellowship. Why is it it feels like we're losing all the time when we look around us? In the news, why does it always feel like we're losing, we Christians? Because, here's the answer, because the kingdom of God grows inconspicuously, ordinarily. And so let me try to explain why I think this is so. First of all, because of our own ordinariness as redeemed and saved people. We're very ordinary, aren't we? 
Wouldn't it be nice if whenever somebody converted to Christ and became a Christian, if they sprouted a new set of angel wings on their back so we could identify who the Christians are? Wouldn't it be nice? This will be a little bit awkward, but look to the person directly in front of you right now. You see any angel wings cropping out of those shirts? Probably not. Look at, the, look at the crown of the person's head right in front of you today. You see any halos on anybody's head around you? Probably not. Why not? Because we're ordinary people. We're saved. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet from all external appearances, we're ordinary, just exactly like everybody else. Now, it would be a wonderful thing if every time a person converted to Christ, they grew to at least six feet tall. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if when a person became a Christian, all of their warts fell off and all of their freak hairs fell off of their body and they became far more beautiful than they used to be and so it would be obvious who are the Christians and who are not the Christians. It would be amazing if we could simply discern them from how beautiful they were. But here's the thing, we are ordinary people, aren't we? We have ordinary problems. We have ordinary financial difficulties. We have ordinary relationship difficulties. Sometimes our marriages fizzle and struggle. We are absolutely ordinary except for one thing that is different about us. And to to illustrate that, I want to turn to uh, Acts chapter 4, describing the apostles. Listen to this. You You don't have to turn there if you can't get there quick enough. Just listen to this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Christians are unordinary. I'm sorry, we are ordinary, uneducated. We are common folk. We are no different categorically. We are not more intelligent than the unbelievers around us just because we happen to be Christians. Now, of course, we know some things that is revealed through scriptural truth, but it's not as though we're we're special people, we're ordinary. And yet here's what's special about us, here's what's distinct and unique about us. Chapter four, verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So we are ordinary people that have been saved gloriously by the good news of the gospel. But more, more than that, even the things that we consider to be very good news, the rest of the world can easily ignore, isn't that so? But what is the most incredible thing you might possibly do in your life? Lead somebody to Christ, perhaps? Bring your child forward for baptism? Go on a mission trip and serve Jesus in the world, and yet nobody's ever going to write a newspaper article about that? Trump isn't going to tweet about that. If our church grows 2.5% this year, that would be an amazing thing. Wouldn't that be great? I'll take 1%. The world isn't going to notice The results of the kingdom are so inconspicuous. They're so easily overlooked. They're so ordinary. The fruit of the kingdom, we might say it this way, is non-quantifiable. Let me tell you a little story real quick. A couple years back in my home church, we had an elder that had come from a mega church, and he decided uh, that our church needed to grow. That's a good goal. Churches should grow if they can, right? And so he'd been a part of a few mega church, uh, church strategy planning sessions before. And so he had an idea that every committee in the church should come up with quantifiable goals for their committee or for their ministry. Now, you know the difference between a quantifiable goal and a non-quantifiable goal. And a quantifiable goal, it's something that you can measure. 
And so some of the committees sent back some ideas and they said this or that, we wanna improve this way or that way. But if they weren't quantifiable, we red-penned them and sent them back for rewrite. And so, well, how, but, but here's the problem. What can you quantify in a church? Well, usually two things, attendance and money. Those are the two things that you can measure. Everything else is pretty difficult to measure, isn't it? And so it ended up that we had a bunch of church goals surrounding attendance and money. But here's the problem. The problem with that approach is that most of the fruit of the kingdom is non-quantifiable. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. You can't count it. So how would you know, for instance, if you grew more loving in one particular year? How would you know it if our discipleship programs were growing our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? How could you measure it if you grew more patient or that you had more of the fruit of the Spirit in your lives? The problem is that most of the fruit of the kingdom is non-quantifiable and therefore unobservable to the eye. And so that's why, let's go back to Mark chapter four, That's why Jesus tells this other parable about sowing seed in Mark chapter four. Now don't confuse this parable from the one that Sean preached to us last week. Sean did a wonderful job if you didn't get to see that sermon. But look at the second parable about seed sowing in verse 26. Let's read it again. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now don't think that the point of this parable is that results happen overnight. That's not the idea. And it's not saying exactly the same thing as verses one through 20 say in the other parable about sowing seeds. The point of this parable is that most of the fruit of the kingdom of God is hidden from the eye until it becomes apparent. And it will become apparent in the last days when verse 29 happens, when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There will be a time when the harvest does come. And so if we learn anything about the nature of the inconspicuous kingdom of God. It is simply that God is all the time growing his people. God is all the time blessing his church. God is all the time advancing his kingdom even if it's not recognized or observed, especially by the unbelieving world. Does that make sense? Okay. So God is alive and doing well. His church is alive and growing. His church is bearing fruit even when it seems that it's not. Now let's go on to the second point. The second point we're gonna draw from verse 32. The second point is simply that the invincible mission of the kingdom of God will be realized. So the mission of the kingdom is in fact invincible. Now let's look at the verse, verse 32. Yet when it is sown, okay, so we have this this ordinary seed, this small seed, this mustard seed, which is no big deal. It's just a, a tiny possibility. When it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all of the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. So it is a certainty what is going to happen. In Daniel's, in Daniel's story, in Daniel's vision, again, it is an absolute certainty. And so we read this in Daniel's vision. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, not might, not possibly. 
He will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed now, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. And it says, to conclude, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And so we find that the mission of the kingdom is in fact invincible. Now let me give you three sub points here about the invincibility of the kingdom and why it cannot actually fail. It cannot actually fail despite the news cycle. A, because it is an eternal kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. When a person is saved, her soul is saved forever, right? That's Reformed theology right there. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. When a person is saved, her soul or his soul is saved forever. Never again is it contested, though there may be trials, though there may be difficulties. When Christ saves a person, he saves that person surely, and so as people are being drawn into God's kingdom, now all over the world, you can't see this, but it's happening probably even today, as that the number of the saved is slowly approaching that perfect number of the divine predestined elect that only God knows. God, in his eternal wisdom, knows exactly how many people shall be saved. He has predestined them. He has elected them. He has made it certain. And every day, the number of the actually saved grows closer and closer and closer and closer to that foreordained number. And every single one of those people that comes into the kingdom through the blood of his saving power is never again in soul jeopardy. They are saved Surely and securely. That is not so in the kingdoms of man, is it? In the kingdoms of man, you take a piece of land. England takes a piece of land from the, Fran from the French, let's say. But it could be taken back, right? Ukraine has Crimea. Now Russia has Crimea, okay? Jerusalem has, Israel has this piece of land, this ravine, now the Muslims want to have it back, this part of Jerusalem, that part of Jerusalem. In the kingdoms of man, what happens is a, is a piece of land can be taken and retaken back and forth and back and forth. Not so in the kingdom. When Christ saves somebody, he saves them eternally. Second, his kingdom is an ancient kingdom. His kingdom is 2,000 years old, going back to the times of the New Testament. In fact, 4,000 years old if we want to go back to Abraham. Further than that, even if we go back to the times where God made the promises of the Redeemer to come to Adam and Eve, his kingdom is an ancient kingdom. And that's why more and more, I have to tell you this, I'll just uh, tell you just a personal, personal love of mine. Whenever, whenever we're in our, our bulletin, and uh, we have the opportunity to confess the faith and we come to something like the Apostles' Creed, which was hundreds and, and, and even more than a thousand years old, right? The older I get, the more I rejoice in reciting these things together as the body of Christ because it reminds me of the ancient nature of the kingdom of God. So much older than us, so much bigger than us, so much grander and more majestic than what's happening here and our little place that we call the United States of America. When we confess the faith, we are confessing not only a global faith, but an ancient faith as well. Now I challenge you, go to a map when you get home, 
and look up Babylon. Can you find it? It's not there. You say, there must be a mistake. Uh, Go look up Medo-Persia. Go find Assyria on a map. Go find the Holy Roman Empire. Go find the USSR. How many of you remember the USSR? It's not on a map. Go find Czechoslovakia. Go find East Germany. Go find the Ottoman Empire. Why can't you find any of those things on the maps anymore? Because the kingdoms of men, lowercase k, are not eternal and ancient as is the kingdom of Christ. This is the third subpoint. It is a global kingdom. It is truly global. It is universal. When we confess in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, that other denomination. We're talking about the Catholicity of the faith, that the faith, the Christian faith is global. It is ubiquitous. It is universal. Now, there will be some who will tell you, and they'll be wrong about it, but they'll try to convince you that evangelicalism is something that's Western, even white, but that is far from the truth. The kingdom of God is global. The kingdom of God is ubiquitous. The kingdom of God is Chinese. The kingdom of God is African. The kingdom of God is Nordic. The kingdom of God is Pacific Islander. The kingdom of God consists of every shade of skin, every eye color, every hair texture. That's why I'm so optimistic because Revelation 7, 9 says this. Listen to this prophecy. I looked and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. His kingdom, his mission, is invincible. And that's why I'm so glad to be a part of this church, Gospel Fellowship, because believers, he is alive and moving in our local church. Do you believe that? I mean, just look at our bulletin, for goodness sakes. If you don't believe that, look, we've got biblical worship, we've got solid reform theology, we're singing psalms, we have biblical preaching, we've got a nursery in this church. You know what that means? It means we have babies. That means we have children. Uh, We've got visitors, we've got kids ministries, we have Bible studies for almost every group in the church. We'll be electing biblical eldership in a couple of days from now. Uh, We have a life witness ministry going out to to the March for Life in a few days. We have men's cornhole coming up for goodness sakes. That's an alive church right there. We got cornhole. We've got missions opportunities. God is absolutely moving in gospel fellowship, and I am so thankful to be a part of it. So when I look out and people tell me today in the Gallup polls or in the newspapers, the sociologists, the talking heads on CNN, they'll tell you today that Christianity is losing, that it is dying, that it is on its last gasp, that the fat lady is about to sing it reminds me more of that time that um, a journalist had heard a rumor that Mark Twain had passed. And remember what Twain famously said about that? Rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Now let me just close out here this morning. I'm gonna close out with five of the most encouraging things that Jesus Christ ever said. This is for you pessimists, including me. 
Be encouraged about his invincible kingdom. Here are five encouraging things that Jesus said. First, I will lose nothing. This is from John 6, 38 and 39. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Not one square inch of Jesus' kingdom will be seated over by force. Not one soul that he saves will ever be lost again to the powers and the clutches of Satan. Here's the second thing. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not hold. Listen, Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, speaking to the apostle here, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now most of the time we have that image exactly reversed. We imagine ourselves in a tiny little fortress trying to hold up the walls against Satan's onslaught as he's attacking us from every direction. Actually, this is exactly backwards. It is Jesus' kingdom who is the one that is advancing and it's the gates of hell that are being bent over even right now as the kingdom of God is on the move. Here's another one. The leaven will saturate. He told them, this is Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so think back 2,000 years ago to when Jesus Christ first gave the Great Commission. There's a lot of unleavened world out there. But from the very beginning stages of those apostolic missions, Paul and Peter and the others beginning to preach the gospel, it's like leaven working its way all the way through the batch of dough and it's happening even today. Though there are many people groups yet that have not heard of Christ, have not yet heard his name, those people groups are going down in number and down in number and down in number as the name of Jesus Christ advances, swelling throughout the whole world. Two more for you. The gospel will be proclaimed, he says in Matthew 20, uh, 24, 14. The kingdom of heaven will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Not gonna flip those over, okay? End is not gonna come before the testimony to all nations. The testimony to all nations will prevail and then the end will come and then finally this this one should be familiar to you, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have taught you. And then he says this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the inconspicuous nature of your kingdom. That though the world overlook us, though the world neglect us, though the world try to ignore us, yet the love and the mercy, the power of the gospel will saturate the world. We pray, O oh Father, that you would use us to this end, that we too might rejoice in the harvest. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. 
Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.